Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here today. Um, you have uh, several pages worth of notes in front of you, but I'm going to be really square up front and let you know that my goal, you know, my, my first tier goal is to get through one sentence today. It's a big sentence. It's an important sentence. But uh, that, that's, you know, if I get that much done, I will be a very happy individual. Um, and uh, if we get beyond that, well, that's, that's all, you know, cake and blessings. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, our souls long for your salvation, and we hope in your word. Our eyes long for your promises, and we ask, when will you comfort us? For we have been like a wineskin in the smoke, yet we have not forgotten your statutes. We have not forgotten your promises. We have not forgotten all that you have done for us. How long must your servants endure? When will you judge those who persecute your people? When will you come back and take us to live with you in glory and in the resurrection? Yet while we live in this world, the insolent have dug pitfalls for us. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. The world persecutes us with falsehood, and so we call on you to help us. They have almost made an end of us on the earth, but we have not forsaken your precepts. We continue to walk by faith. In your steadfast love, give us life, that we may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Amen. All right, so here is the sentence that I hope that we'll get through and uh, tease apart to really understand what's being said here. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation, propitiation by his blood to be received by Faith. Now, you might complain to me, uh, Pastor Tritton, there is a period in the middle of that. That means there are two sentences there. Yes, in English, there are two. In Greek, it is one sentence, one big idea that is all uh, presented here for us. So, when we talk about the righteousness of God, I'm going to take you all the way back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Right at the beginning of all of this, when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So basically, Paul put this big idea out in, uh, in chapter 1. And then he spent some time going through talking about different kinds of righteousness, different ways that people look to present themselves as righteous. And now he's coming back to what is this righteousness of God? So this righteousness 
is manifested apart from the law. The Greek reads, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's probably not the smoothest, best English to translate it you know, the, that exact way. But I think that the order that Paul wrote this in actually emphasizes this idea that the righteousness of God is something that is separate from the law. It is apart from the law. And this, this is separate from our efforts or our own ability to identify righteousness. It's alien to us. It is foreign. Not in the sense that we can't understand it, we can't receive it, but it's not something that is in and of ourselves. It's non-performative. Pretty much everything that, that Paul talked about, you know, from chapter 1 to this point, has been about how do you conduct your life in, in terms of, you know, are you righteous or not? And he is now at this point where it's not really about your performance at all. And this is a message of pure gospel. And remember that in Romans 1.16, it says that the gospel, this good news, is the power of God for salvation for the one who believes. And that's, that's, that's what's being asked of the followers of Jesus. Believe. Trust. Receive. That's what this comes down to. That's very different than how the world operates. Paul says this has been manifested When we hear the word manifest, I mean, honestly, the first thing I think of is, you know, like on a cruise ship, you have a manifest, you know, who's on board? Um, but uh, what this actually means is that this is a reality that someone has caused to be seen. Somebody has made this known. So... This righteousness of God is now being presented. It, it, we're becoming aware of it. It's actually a passive verb, a perfect passive verb. So it's a perfect meaning that it's, it's a, uh, something that has taken place in the past that continues to have present um, consequences. Um, and it's passive in the sense that, that you're not active in it. It's completely done upon you rather than you doing something to get this. This is not something that we know by our natural knowledge. It comes entirely from the outside. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
I'm driving this point because there is a major part of Christianity that will teach that you have to make a decision in order to believe, that there is something that you must do in order to contribute to this salvation. I'm, I'm driving this point because there are major threads within Christianity across history that says, you know, okay, now you're forgiven, that's great, now you have to live your life a particular way. And if you step outside of that, well, you're a backslider and, you know, and your salvation is in question. There are parts of the Christian uh, church that is active today that teaches, you know, okay, you are born sinful. And once you're baptized, that original sin is atoned for. But now, now you are on the hook for your conduct and your behavior. And you must make sure that you confess all of those sins and do the satisfactions that are necessary in order to be forgiven for your sins. This is a message that is basically saying that there's something inside of us that does not accept this incredible message that God from the outside saves us. And so we need the Spirit of God to, let's see, some early service people, to open our minds that's a little hint toward the sermon for those of you who are coming to the late service. Um, to open our minds to receive what Jesus is giving to us by faith. And not only that, this whole message of the gospel, it, that, that this righteousness of God will come from the outside to us, to our natural person, to our old sinful nature, this is folly. It's foolishness. It's a ridiculous idea. And the only way that we can take hold of this is when the Spirit of God opens our minds, opens our hearts, creates faith in us to take hold of these promises. When He empowers these things. And it's always been this way. So for these several weeks now, um, the opening prayer has been from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a, a, an acrostic um, psalm. So it's broken into different sections by the Hebrew alphabet. And each section that we, uh, we read um, starts with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if we, uh, I didn't look to see which, which letter we're on, but uh, um, Psalm uh, 19, 119, 81 through 88 is what I base the prayer on today. Every first word in those verses would start with the same letter. It's kind of a clever way to do things. Um, but we're going through this because this, is, um, this, this psalm, in a lot of ways, demonstrates living a life of faith that trusts in the righteousness of God. That, that this is something that God does from the outside to us. So check this out. In Psalm 119, the psalmist prays for God to teach me, open my eyes, do not hide, give me life according to your promises, your word. We'll get into that in just a second. Uh, make me understand, lead me, incline my heart, turn my eyes. And what, what the psalmist is emphasizing for us is that he needs God's power to see the things 
that God wants him to know, the way that he wants him to live as a person who is righteous. As a person who lives as part of this community of faith and forgiveness. And so you, you have this person who is a believer who continues to pray, let me see this. Help me to understand this. Well, apart from faith, you, you're not going to get this at all. And so God has, has given us some gifts to help us to believe, to cause us to believe. And, and so when the psalmist asks about these things, the focus of those requests is, is it's, well, God's law. And when I say God's law, I want you to remember that in the Old Testament, the word for law is the word Torah, which comes from the word to teach. So when we talk about God's law, often it's talking simply about the commands. This is, you know, this is what sin is. But in the full sense of God's law, it contains both the law and the gospel. Not just the commands, but also the messages of salvation and God's mercy and grace. The psalmist wants to know and to see God's testimonies, to understand his ways, to be led in his ways, to, to be taught his, his precepts, his statutes commandments, his righteous rules. Well, one of God's commands is that we believe in his son, that we might receive forgiveness. It's not all, you know, do this, do this, do this. It's trust me, believe in my promises. And then that leads into these other things where we start to make choices in our lives as someone who is redeemed and alive in the gospel who lives in this forgiveness and whose lives are transformed by what God is doing through us and in us. And Paul says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So when we think of the, what we call the Old Testament, you know, those first five books are what we would call the law, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, th those are the books that they call the law. There's some history books in there, and then you have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, and, uh, you know, Micah, and Malachi, and all those guys. And then there's also poetry. But when they talk about the law and the prophets, this is, um, I, I believe the word for this is hendiadis where you kind of use the ends to talk about the whole thing. So in, in one of the hymns today, uh, we have a phrase in there that God is our Alpha and Omega. What does that mean? It's the beginning and the end. What about the middle? He's, he's just there at the beginning, he's just there at the end? Yeah, it's the whole continuum. You know, and, and so um, when it says the law and the prophets, he's saying he, you know, all of the, the, the scripture bears witness to this righteousness of God that is given by faith. So that means that when we look at, at what we call the Old Testament, it is promising us the Savior. 
It is promising the Christ. Just off the top of your head, does anybody remember the first time that that promise is given? To Adam and Eve, that's right. So it's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After they've eaten the fruit, you know, it talks about how um, Eve's child will strike the head and, you know, it, and this promise is, is coming of a savior that, that is going to defeat what the devil had just done um, and, and the sin that Adam and Eve had just committed. Um, when you read through the Old Testament, is there a commitment to forgiveness on the part of God for his people Israel? Over and over again. Seriously, if you ever want to understand forgiveness for really rotten people, read the Old Testament. If you ever want to see what dysfunction looks like, read the Old Testament. You know, we look at these people and we're like, oh, they're the paragons of faith. Well, maybe they are paragons of faith in the sense that they trust God's promises, but they are not paragons of behavior. Um, Noah, you remember Noah, right? The whole world gets flooded and um, God rescues him and his family. And uh, do you remember what happened right after the, the, the flood? Yeah, you know. He planted a vineyard. Well, this isn't right after. I mean, it takes a while for grapes to grow and for grape juice to ferment. But it says he planted a vineyard and he drank the wine and he got drunk and he's laying there butt naked. A hero of the faith. It's never been about those people. It's always been about God giving forgiveness and mercy to those people including us. The people of, of Israel, they were called by grace. You know, God flat out tells them, it wasn't because you were the most numerous people or the most powerful that I rescued you. In fact, when God rescued Israel in Egypt, what were they? Slaves. Slaves. In the same way that we are slaves, to sin. It, it, it's not about them, it's about Him. These people were saved by faith, the same way that we are. And all through the scriptures, this is the message that we trust in God's promises that there is a Savior. In the Old Testament, was He is coming. In the New Testament, which we live in now, it is He has come. The Christ has come and He has saved us. Um, so, uh, one of the images that you can think of in terms of, of, of like, the, the timeline of history is you have this incredible moment of the cross where God, the Son of God, dies to atone for sins. All life before that is lived looking ahead to that. And all life lived after it looks back to that event, looking forward to the promise, looking back to the promise. But all of it then revolves around the promise of the Savior who would come. All of history, it's all about forgiveness. It's all about God's goodness coming to us and us simply receiving these things by faith. And so the thread through this whole thing is that God is the Savior. Without any merit or worthiness in Israel, 
or as we would say it in the catechism without any merit or worthiness in me. It's just a continuation of the same thing, but they didn't get it. And sometimes we don't get it, and that's, that's why we need to really um, dig into the Word to, to, to have our minds opened to these things. Because we still want to make it about us in some ways. And he's, he's really driving this home for us in, in this little brief passage here. It says, The righteousness of God that is apart from law is, it's received through faith in Christ Jesus. What do you have to do to get it? Believe. Trust. Hold on to the promises. Get the gift. The gift that he's giving to you. It is for all who believe. And this has been the message all the way through the scriptures. So in Genesis 12, verse 3, God calls Abraham. Actually, he was called Abram at the time. He's living with his family in a place called Haran. And he says, leave your family, leave your entire identity, and go to the place that I will show you. He doesn't say, hey, let's get in the car and we're going to go down to, uh, you know, Miami and have a good time. He says, pack up, start going, and I'll let you know when you're there. And he, God speaks to him and he says, you know, he makes some, some promises to him about the land that he's going to, that God will give him this land. But he also makes this little promise where he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you, Abraham. And later he clarifies that a little bit more. All the nations will be blessed through your seed, your offspring. Somewhere down the line, there's going to be a child, a descendant of Abraham. And he, he receives this promise in faith. And he steps out in faith. And it's for all people. It's for everyone who will believe this. And in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, God is speaking of the coming of the Messiah. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. The Jewish people had come up with this idea that, that this salvation was only for them. But here God is saying, no. It's not just for, it's for all nations. And I think this is important for us too because I think sometimes we think that this is just for us. It certainly can't be for those people of the other political party that we don't like. It certainly can't be for those people who have that sin that we find disgusting, that we're you know, offended by. But he says, a light for the nations. Who's included in the nations? Everyone. So this is a promise for all people. Not only that, in Isaiah 60, verse 3, he says that all nations shall come to your light. That this Messiah, the Savior that comes, draws from everywhere and from every type of person that there is. 
And then in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And I see in that last line, yeah, the law goes out, God's command goes out, but there's also a word from the Lord. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. So it's a message of law and condemnation, but there's also this message of salvation that is delivered all throughout the Old Testament. And it's for us to receive this righteousness that comes from outside, this righteousness of God that is given as a gift. And he, he says that of these people, of these nations, there is no distinction. Because formerly, Israel was God's chosen and beloved. But they were chosen and beloved for a purpose. To draw all people to God. That the other nations would see what an amazing, wonderful God they have. And for Israel to be able to say, yeah, he's pretty great. All you got to do is believe and be part of this. And they didn't. And I don't say that in any kind of, you know, snarkiness. Because I think sometimes we as Christians do this too. I mean, up here we believe that this salvation is for all people. But then we don't necessarily share it with all people. So even... Even this was for the sake of drawing all nations. I hate it when I put a uh, pronoun in something. I'm like, what was the previous referent? Um, oh, this making of no distinction. He's like, no. The choosing of God's people, the choosing of Israel, was for the sake of drawing all nations to him. And when we get a little bit later in uh, the book of Romans, I think it's around chapter 9, we're going to find that there's an idea that's presented that God chose all nations in order to make his people Israel jealous to draw them back to himself too. To receive this righteousness that comes by faith and not by some kind of an ethnic identity. He says there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We use that word sin a lot. What is it? What was that? Disobedience to God. Disobedience to God. Okay. Any other thoughts about sin? I'm going to drink some water. That was an awful sound that you just heard. Little, this is sin. Little, yeah, little, like, little 
All right. I didn't know that one. Being deceived by Satan, is that what you said? Yep. It's what separates us from God. It's what separates us, yeah. Um, people. What's that? Kind of separates us and brings us together. Yeah. You know, there's this phrase that I, I ponder sometimes, you know, that, that was boring as sin. I'm like, I don't know. I, kind of find that to be fun and sometimes you know get a group of people who are sinning together that could be uh, destructive but <laughs> um, I think people have th this idea th this image of sin at, kind of in a uh, dark and mysterious power that um, attacks us and leads us in the, you know to do terrible things you know um, and, and I think that people tend to see it on a continuum, that uh, some sin is worse than other sin. I think we experience that in our lives, that some sin has greater consequence than other sin. Um, and, uh, and there are other people who completely and totally reject the idea of sin because they see it as this, you know, um, oppressive black mark that is against them or, or you know, some kind of authority that's being pressed down upon them or something like that. But when you look at the word itself, the word sin, um, the word in Greek is an archery term and it simply means to miss the mark. So sometimes when we approach the word sin, I think that people have this image of this like really deep moral failing, you know, and I'm not saying that doesn't fit, it does, but it's also something as small as missing the bullseye when you're shooting an arrow. It's not being perfect in your shot. Or as Hamilton would say, it's throwing away your shot. Maybe not. The Hebrew word for sin means to go wrong, to make a mistake, to miss the way. I like that one a lot, to miss the way. Uh, because in the Psalms, it often talks about, you know, walking in God's way. And in fact, um, if you read the book of Acts, before Christians were known as Christians, they were known as, we were known as followers of the way. The way being Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. You know, this, this idea that there is a mode of life, there is a direction for our lives, there, there is a purpose in our lives, and when we sin, we miss that way that God intended for us. I think another very important image for sin uh, comes to us from 1 John chapter 3. Um, I believe this is part of our, our New Testament reading today when it says that sin is lawlessness. It's a, it's a type of anarchy that rejects any authority that's placed over us. You know, 
So if we're going to, to talk about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's probably a good idea to kind of have a, some kind of an image of what that is. It's, you know, there is a, there's an objective standard. We missed it. There is a way that we're supposed to go and we chose a different path. You know, there is a law and we have chosen lawlessness. So really anything that violates God's objective standard uh, uh, and his righteousness uh, of God's law is, is sin. Uh, in Isaiah chapter five, verse 20, um, God reveals to the, uh, to the prophet uh, uh, the following. He says, um, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, you know, th there is this reality of God and his love and his forgiveness, and we keep trying to exchange something uh, other than that uh, in there. Uh, so when we, when we talk about sin, there's this good that God has given, and then we choose the evil. There's light, but we choose darkness. There's sweet, and we choose bitter. Uh, and it's this dichotomy of the experience of, of um, what is truth and what is false. But the trick is, what is your standard? that there is actually an objective standard that's out there that God has revealed. That there is a righteous uh, law that's out there that we are expected to be in conformity to. And so we speak the truth about what is sin. And then what is God's righteousness that is delivered to us? Luther was um, thinking about this in the, uh, it's a fairly important document for our theology. Um, don't read it, it's boring. Uh, but it's got some really good lines in it uh, called the Heidelberg Disputation. And in Thesis 21, he says, a theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls a thing what it actually is. So part of our problem is that there is this reality of sin and we keep wanting to try to call it good so that we become righteous by our own standards. But there's a different standard out there. And so how do we match up to that? How do we come to have this righteousness that God gives as a gift? And so ultimately any deviation from God's truth, um, which stands as that objective standard, it's delivered to us in the law and the prophets, God's word, is sin. And as we fall short of that, in an active sense, uh, this verb means to come too late or, or, or to miss, that we, we fall short. But in a passive sense, which is what we have in the text, it means to, to come short of or to come behind in uh, the glory of God. And in this context, it means the full righteousness of God. So all have sinned, all have lived by a wrong standard, a different objective standard, 
maybe by our own subjective standard, whatever applies to me. So we all have sinned. We all come in too late. We all miss the mark. We come in too late. And we lack the full righteousness and holiness of God. Yeah. I was watching a Netflix movie that was subtitled called New York Maps. It's about two ultra-conservative Jews. I've heard of this. That go to retrieve a wayward wife who goes to Berlin. And one of the guys, you know, was buried about the other proposes to be, but he goes to a house of prostitution and he gambles and he's drinking and smoking and um, the other Jew says, apparently there's two Torahs, one for New York and one while you're traveling. Ah. Did you hear that? She said that uh, there was a comment in the show that she was watching. Apparently there are two Torahs. One for when you're in New York and one for when you're traveling. Or in your community. Yeah. Another way that we might say this in an uh, American culture is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And that's what the one said, what stays in Berlin stays in Berlin. Yeah. And interestingly, they said that women are forbidden from reading the Torah. That, that depends upon the sect that, uh, of, and by sect, you know, think like denomination. So, now I took issue with the word order before, um, and I'm going to do it again here for verse 24. Um, So if you are uh, reading verse 24 in the, uh, the English Standard Version, it says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I would translate it this way, being justified, which is a present passive participle. We are in the state and it's something that is done to us, not something that we did or accomplished. Being justified freely, being justified without cost, being justified with no reason, being justified completely and totally undeservedly in his grace through the redemption, through the the deliverance, through the payment of ransom, through the release that is in Christ Jesus. This is really hammering home that, that the righteousness of God is something that is completely alien to us. The theological Latin for this is that it's extra nos. It's outside of us. And it's also outside of the law. It's something completely different. So so we're justified. This is something that's completely a gift. It's this grace of redemption that is in Christ. And who is this Christ? Well, Christ is the one that God put forth. So this is God's plan. This isn't something that we came up with. This is God's purpose and plan for us. Going back to Genesis 3, um, he will strike your, uh, you will strike his head, he will strike your heel, you know, that that promise. 
as a propitiation. And I like, I, I, love, when, I love this word. And uh, you probably all have heard me talk about this in worship services. Uh, I like to quip, you know, this is a word we use all the time, right? Propitiation. The Greek word is hilasterion. It literally means a, a place of forgiveness. God put forth Jesus as a place to receive forgiveness. Now this word, hilasterion, uh, this word that we translate propitiation here, it is used two times in the New Testament. It's used 13 times in the, in the Old Testament. Of the 15 times that it is used, 14 of them, it means the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, you know, Indiana Jones, right? You know, the, the Ark of the Covenant is that, that, that spot that, well, the, the image is that it was God's footstool. That this is the place that heaven touched earth. So maybe you remember reading in Exodus when, when God would lead them through the, uh, the wilderness, that there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Well, after the tabernacle was built, that pillar of fire and, and the pillar of cloud came and settled right above the tabernacle and right above the Ark of the Covenant. The idea is that, you know, this is the place that God touches earth. Well, why would God touch earth? Well, he's there to show mercy and grace and forgiveness. Why would God go around with Israel in a, in a, you know, as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire? It is to express his love and his forgiveness and his mercy to them. Is also protection? Well, that's all part of his mercy and his grace, right? Why would he protect us? Because of his love and kindness toward us, or toward Israel in this case. So in Exodus chapter 25, um, Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Uh, Exodus literally means to leave. Um, and it's the, 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 the book where they leave, is, leave Egypt and, and uh, leave the slavery of, uh, against the Egyptians. Um, so chapter 25, verse 22, he's talking about the mercy seat here. He's talking about the mercy seat. He's talking about the ark. Uh, and he says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This, this word, it, it means, <laughs> this is where God meets his people. God put forth Jesus as the place that we meet him in order that he would deliver forgiveness and life and salvation to us. So God's purpose is that, that Jesus' presence is the place that we meet him. It's where we meet him in forgiveness Jesus is the place where we receive God's forgiveness. 
Jesus is the place that we meet God in worship. So all of our worship revolves around who is Jesus and what has he done for us. God's purpose is where we meet, is that Jesus is where we meet him in person. That he's not just this disembodied idea that's out there, but he's an actual real person that interacts with us in our lives through his word and through his sacraments. He touches us. He delivers to us. He's active in us. And we receive this, this propitiation through Jesus. We're connected and we come into God's presence of mercy and grace. And that salvation is given to us through faith in his blood. Where do we experience Jesus' blood? Yeah, we receive it in, in the Lord's Supper. We receive his real blood uh, in, with, and under the wine. Don't completely understand how that happens, but we believe that we really, truly receive it. Um, but where else do we see his blood? Where, where does God get blood? Because Jesus is human. So that is the incarnation. But we also see his blood at the crucifixion, right? What are kind of the two highest points of the church here? Easter, Easter which you know, we would include you know, the cross with that because there is no resurrection without a death. We're going to tie those together. Christmas. I, I promise you the highest, the three highest attended services of any church here. Uh, and not, not necessarily in this order, but usually it's Christmas, then Easter, and then Mother's Day. <laughs> and one of the lowest attended is Father's Day. Yeah. Um, anyhow, this idea of blood is actually hugely important. Blood speaks to that God became human, that Jesus was really, truly human, um, and he dwelt among us and, and lived and had ministry among us. It points us to the crucifixion. It points us to atonement. Sin is only paid for in the Bible with blood. It's the only thing that, that covers sin is blood. And then we receive this in the Lord's Supper. So Jesus' blood covers our sin. And in Exodus chapter 24, uh, verses 1 through 8, um, some powerful things here. So it says this, Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nabad and Abihu, uh, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. 
So Moses, you know, he's acting as God's mouth, uh, and the people respond, yes, this is what we're going to do. We're going to follow what God says. And Moses wrote down all the words of the law. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Ready for this? And Moses took half of the blood from oxen and you know all these all these offerings. How much blood is in an ox? Do you think? Yeah, a lot. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, bowls. He's got bowls of blood, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Hold on to that you know, mental image for a moment. You know, because normally when we picture the tabernacle, you know, it's all pretty and shiny and everything. He just covered the altar with blood. And he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Anybody like thrilled with the idea of being with blood? What's going on here? I think this is pointing ahead to being covered in Christ's blood for the forgiveness of our sins. I also think that there's an actual revulsion factor that's involved with this because of the gravity of sin. I think of that blood on the altar and uh, these are things that weren't supposed to be touched. So what does that look like? You know. When you get a bunch of blood on something, I don't know if you've experienced this. I'm guessing you, know, you nurses out there maybe have. I, you've probably seen some of this, you know, on a farm and stuff like that. But uh, you know, when you butcher things, I mean, you get this cake and it's disgusting and gross, it, and it's just this blood that's congealed and hardened. And I think that that becomes an image of what sin is like, and yet. It's through this humanity of Jesus and his blood that that disgustingness is taken away. So jumping ahead to, to Leviticus chapter 16, and you literally could read the whole chapter, and, and it speaks to, to this idea. Um, but we're only going to focus on verses 14 and 15. Um, basically, Chapter 16 in Leviticus, which is the law uh, of, of the worship of the community, is about the Day of Atonement. So once every year, the high priest would enter into the presence of the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. So we've already talked about the ark is the place where, where God touches earth. It's his footstool. It's the place that we meet God for forgiveness. And 
the high priest only is allowed in that place once a year, and he comes in with all kinds of incense, and he comes in with an offering of blood. And he'll against the ark. That's really not the image that we usually think of when we think of the Ark of the Covenant, right? We usually think of it all shiny. Verses 14 um, and 15. He shall take some of the blood of the bull. This is the priest takes some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. In the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. God's salvation is done in blood. Um, We have all kinds of images and ideas about, you know, about God and uh, what forgiveness and salvation should look like. Um, I just want to make sure that I didn't do this later. Uh, so, when I was doing some of my studies, one of the things that I had to do was I had to interview people uh, about their experience of what their image of God was like. And I remember talking with one individual in particular, and her image of God was rooted in this idea of a cosmic Christ. It's this picture of Jesus in his glory. And you know, he, he just, you know, everything's beautiful and wonderful about him. And that's kind of the goal that she had to experience Jesus that way. And we did a series of devotions and, uh, you know, it, 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 part of that devotion was very much focused on the cross. And afterwards, she came to me and, and she said, when I thought of Jesus, I always thought of him in this glorious and beautiful way. But I never understood the crucified Christ. I always hated crucifixes, she said. I hated the idea of Jesus on the cross. I didn't want to deal with him there. I wanted to deal with him after the resurrection. I wanted to deal with him up in heaven. But where does God give us Jesus to deal with us? On the cross. In the blood. And I'd encourage you to, you know, just think about this in terms of the architecture of churches. And, you know, maybe the art you have in your own home. Look for crucifixes. A lot of churches don't have them. Yeah? Uh, when I was in Italy a few years ago, I was at a small church. That, you know, they, there's like art hanging everywhere on the walls. Yeah. And one, one small church was really moving to the art. The artist painted many scenes of the 
crucifixion and Jesus' life and of course a lot of Mary's. <laughs> but the, it was an old artist, you know, not new. And the way he painted Jesus, the crucified Jesus, was like it was from a black and white movie. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it around was painted with color. And there was this like pale, dead Jesus. Yeah. It, was, it was very moving. Yeah. My point here is that what Romans teaches us is that the righteousness of God, it's found in the blood. It's the Jesus who dies for us. And I know that there's this really big temptation to get past the crucifixion. I want to get to Easter. And I, I want to get to all the, the fun stuff. But the salvation is there in the blood. That's where he meets us. And Jesus, the bloodied Christ, is the place where God brings forgiveness. And so when we come together, we wanna, we, if we wanna really know Jesus, if we really want this righteousness that comes by faith, it's at the cross. So don't neglect the cross. See your Savior there and let his blood be your righteousness. All right, I've taken too long. We need to get to church.